You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell, an anchor here at Washington Post Live and also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Today, my guest is Republican Senator John Thune of South Dakota. He is the Republican whip and the second ranking Republican senator in the Senate. Senator Thune, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Leanne. Nice to be with you. So I want to start, well, first, let me remind our viewers that if you have any questions, feel free to tweet at us, and we will try to get that question into the senator. But, Senator, for you, I'm going to start, and the our conversation is so timely. There was the Georgia uh, runoff election yesterday. Uh, the Republican candidate, uh, uh, Walker, lost. What happened last night? Well, <laughs> I guess where do you start, right, Leanne? Um, I think that, you know, there were uh, signs with the first election in November when we didn't win outright that this was going to be a, a difficult um, election to win. But I think a lot of it comes down to if there are takeaways, obviously there's going to be a lot of after-action reports and postmortems done, not only in Georgia, but in a lot of the other um, swing state elections where we underperformed. But I think a lot of it, too, um, lessons learned that in states that have adopted um, voting formats that are slightly different than maybe what we have been accustomed to in the past, in other words, a lot of mail-in balloting, is just figuring out how to do a better job on the ground game. You've got to get your voters out. That is a huge part of success. And you know, from a tactical standpoint, uh, I think that's an area where we can show some serious improvement. We're very good at putting money on the airwaves, uh, you know, raising resources. You know, clearly some of our candidates were outspent this time, but I don't think that it was it wasn't. Um, a lack of resources that uh, you know led to us not being to being able to pick up some of these seats. But I think it, I think a lot of it from again a tactical standpoint, um, to get out the vote effort is a place to start. I think anytime you look at elections, you start with candidates. There's no substitute for quality candidates. Then you've got to have uh, obviously resources to to get a message out. You've got to have a good message, a message that connects with voters, and then you've got to have an organization. And that's where the ground game comes into play. It's essentially. The blocking and tackling of campaigns, and um, I think we've got you know room for improvement in a number of those categories. So you mentioned quality candidates. Of course, that is something that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has said multiple times that candidate quality matters, and implying that this time around Republicans maybe did not have the best quality candidates. So I want to ask you, it was a, a deliberate decision on the behalf of the National Republican Senatorial Committee run by Senator Rick Scott of Florida not to intervene in Republican primaries. Do you think that was a mistake? That's always a hard question. I mean, I think the argument always is you've got to let Republican voters decide, and that's ultimately it's up to them who your nominees are going to be. But you do have a significant amount of intervention now from other outside groups, uh, people, you know, affiliators, for example, who invest heavily in trying to get certain candidates nominated through the primaries, in many cases, candidates who might not be good general election candidates. And uh, so, you know, I think there will be some takeaways from this election about um, perhaps, you know, as we, as we go through the candidate recruitment process, identifying candidates who are not only good primary election candidates, in other words, they can win a, a Republican primary, but ultimately, particularly if you're talking about a state like Arizona or a, you know, Pennsylvania or Ohio, you've got to have candidates that are also good general election candidates uh, in, in those swing states. 
And I think in many cases, you had candidates this time around who you know, sought the endorsement of former President Trump. And in order to get that endorsement, the predicate was you have to, you've got to be publicly out there um, advancing the argument that the 2020 election was stolen. That's just a, that was a non-starter with independent voters. And if you look at states like Arizona and Pennsylvania, and Arizona particularly, you have 40% of the electorate is independent voters. And, you know, our candidate in Arizona lost by 16 points among independent voters. So those are the voters in the middle. They're the voters who decide general elections. And the message to voters like that um, clearly has to be something other than relitigating the 2020 election. I think a lot of this was just people saying enough of that already. Tell me what you're going to do about the future. Tell me how you're going to improve the you know, quality of life for me and for my family. Uh, tell me what you're going to do to create uh, better paying jobs in this country. I think those are the types of issues that uh, our candidates should have been talking about, unfortunately, um, in many cases, to get through the primary. And again, to get the former president's endorsement, they had to take positions that were very contrary to where I think the general electorate was at. Democrats have adequately, you know, adequately categorized and labeled many Republicans and really lumping all Republicans into uh, far-right MAGA extremists is what they call it. Um, and so would you agree that kind of the candidates who did embrace this um, like you said, the election denialism and didn't run to a general audience that it mattered and it hurt the Republican Party? I don't think there's any question about that. I think it, it, any, any objective analysis or look at the, you know, you go inside the numbers, look at the data, you can see where um, our candidates underperformed, even in states where other Republican candidates who weren't adopting some of those positions were winning and winning decisively. So, yeah, I think that was a big part of it. And, you know, I th again, I think the takeaway is you can be a full spectrum conservative, a right of center conservative, uh, economically, uh, national security and cultural issues. But you've got to be able to articulate a vision for the future of this country that matches up with where uh, your voters, uh, you know, what they want to see uh, the future look like and, 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 and describe a vision to them that is winsome, hopeful, and, uh, and filled with, uh, with opportunity. Not a lot of, um, you know, sort of anger and rage about the last election. I just think that people, in most cases at least, uh, want somebody to talk in a positive way, in a, in a you know, uh, futuristic way about what they're gonna do for, uh, uh, for the electorate, for the voters. And I think in this case, at least, many of our candidates got bogged down and, um, and again, you know, rehashing 2020, and, and that clearly is not a winning strategy. And I hope, if nothing else, that, you know, as we look to the future and now to 2024 and, and, a, and a map that's very positive or favorable for us, that as we go through the candidate recruitment process, um, we can identify candidates who are good. They can be full spectrum conservatives. And I think, that, you know, as a, as a Republican, um, we need a we need a limited government party in this country, a, a party that focuses on personal freedom and individual responsibility, peace through strength, um, you know, pro-life. I think those are kind of core Republican values. But uh, in many cases, again, those got lost in translation because of this obsession that, um, you know, many of our uh, candidates had, and in uh, in some cases, you know, voters too. They're appealing to a certain constituency out there who are still very upset about uh, 2020. But I think the in a general election, at least, that's not where the voters were. The voters were they were economic voters. Um, they were voters who cared about things like inflation, cared about the border, um, cared about crime. Those are the issues that impact their daily lives. Is this a sign then that Donald Trump should not run? 
uh, for president in 2024? We know he's announced, but should he stay in the race? Well, I mean, I, if he if he does, he's you better come up with a different message um, because uh, the one that uh, he insisted that many of our candidates adopt this time around is not a winning message. And so, um, you know, it's his prerogative to be in the race. He's out there already, but I think you'll have um, they'll have plenty of opposition, and the field will start to fill in. And I think some of these recent statements he's made and um, things that he's done have only contributed to uh, the optimism that other candidates have that there's a, a real opportunity here for for someone else. And and that doesn't mean that you know I you, you, we have candidates I think who can appeal to uh, the Trump voters out there. They're obviously a part of our of our um, you know coalition now, and uh, we want to continue to keep them in the fold. But you have to also, you've got to be about addition. You can't be about subtraction. You've got to be growing that that opportunity to win a lot of those voters in the middle. And it seems to me at least that, um, you know, if if the, the president, based on his current trajectory and, and message, is going to have a hard time appealing to those voters, and, and I think there are going to be a lot of our candidates that start to emerge who say, if we want to win the presidency in 2024, if we want to get the majority back in the Senate, uh, we've got to we've got to move in a different direction in terms of our message. If Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, would you support him? Well, I'm uh, I'm hoping Leanne to have other options, and um, and I think again, I think we have a robust primary process. Uh, so you know that is a hypothetical, and I know everybody says, "Well, it's a cop out." You don't answer that question, um, but it truly is at this point very preliminary. And um, I guess what I would tell you is. I hope we have other options, and I think we will have other options. Um, you know, who all gets into this race remains to be seen, but I know there are a number of folks out there who are looking at it who I think represent, uh, you know, a, a sort of a new generation of leadership, a leadership with a, that can articulate a vision um, for the future of this country that is winsome, um, that is, uh, you know, aspirational, and that appeals to people's hopes. And I think, you know, I always think there are two great, you know, motivations in politics, hope and fear. And I want to be, you know, the party uh, that appeals to people's hopes and, and not praise on their fears. And I, and I think that's those types of candidates are starting to, you know, enter this uh, conversation. And I think you'll see more of that. And um, so I'm hopeful that we'll have options. Mm -hmm. Why can you explain to me why it's hard for Republicans to say that Donald Trump shouldn't run or that they won't support him or that he is you know, should be disqualified after, you know, saying the Constitution should be uh, terminated. Why is it hard for Republicans to say that? Well, I think that if you're a, you know, a Republican who's on the ballot, you know, clearly he has a, a very loyal and, and significant following. There's a constituency out there um, that, that strongly supports him. And so, you know, clearly uh, no Republican candidate for office wants to get opposite or at odds with um, a large part of that uh, of our coalition. Um, but that being said, I think I've been fairly straightforward um, going back a couple of years now that, uh, you know, for particularly with respect to the 2020 election, um, but also as we think about the future, that we need new voices and, and new faces. And, you know, the question that you asked about, would you support him if he's the nominee is a different question than would you support him over potential other Republican uh, candidates. And I think they're going to be, like I said, a field. We don't know who they are yet, but I think we will have options. And uh, and I hope to be able to you know, support one of those options. 
Uh, you managed to win your race. I think you had 70% of the vote in a conservative state. But as you mentioned, you have been critical of the former president for a couple of years. And there was concerns about, you know, perhaps a primary challenger and potentially that he was going to target you in your reelection. Um, none of that really came, none of that really happened. But are you pleased that you ran for reelection and that you're going to serve in the Senate for the next six years? I am. It was a hard decision, and the last few years have been difficult. Um, and particularly, I did get primaried, and I haven't had a primary in 26 years in South Dakota. And you know, I. So these are these are. It's a different season that we're in politically. But in the end, it came down really to a determination on my part, at least, about where I thought I could put my skills and talents to their highest and best use, and try and make a difference for the country. And part of it is to move our party and our country in a different direction. And so, you know, in some ways you could say, and, and there were a lot of people who were discouraged from running for re-election or who, you know, Trump, you could argue, forced out of, uh, out of office. Um, he made those threats at me, uh, didn't endorse me, but, and I, I didn't ask for it, believe me. But I think that, um, you know, in our state at least, um, I try to, you know, have a, develop a brand out there that hopefully I think is a common sense, conservative, you know, right of center, solutions oriented, approach to policymaking and to and to doing this job and um so in the end we decided that uh we were going to run our campaign our way and um if people decided to go a different direction that was their prerogative but that if they wanted me to uh, i want to stay in an arena where i still believe you can make a difference and i know as frustrating as it can be and i hear a lot of that from my constituents and i know other people around the country that sometimes our politics is broken, the country's divided, everything's dysfunctional. Um, I still think this is a place where you can make a difference. And I have believed that. Um, sometimes it may be a little bit idealistic, but uh, I, I think as a practical matter, um, you, you know, when you make decisions like this, you're always thinking about, um, you know, where can I take the, the abilities I've been given and the opportunities I've been given and try and make the biggest difference with them. Would you say that the Republican Party is at an inflection point right now that it has to make a determination of what it stands for and how it moves forward? And if so, um, how is it going to do that? I, I think that that um, conversation is uh, underway. And yes, it's true. We probably are at an inflection point. We have to decide whether or not we want to be a party that's built around a set of uh, sort of core principles. And as I mentioned earlier, I think, you know, limited but effective government, personal freedom, economic freedom, uh, free enterprise, free markets, uh, individual responsibility that, you know, you keep the country safe by keeping it strong. I think those are sort of, those to me are fairly timeless um, principles. And they're re really the reason in a lot of ways, coupled with the hope and optimism that he presented at the time, uh, when I was coming of age politically, I, you know, I didn't have um, leanings one way or the other. I, I kind of grew up in a uh, family. My dad was a grand, was a Democrat. My grandfather was a Democrat, and um, but I was uh, inspired by uh, the way that uh, President Reagan at the time uh, articulated a vision for the future of this country, and I think that's what we want to get back to. And I think our party needs to be about the future, not the past. Um, needs to be a party that's built around a core set of values and principles and how they translate into the policy decisions that we make and um, moving the country in a, in a direction that uh, makes us stronger, safer, and hopefully more prosperous for future generations. So yes, the, we are, I think, at an inflection point and we have to decide whether we want our party to be built around an individual, uh, a personality, um, 
and, and be a cult of personality or do we want to be a political party that provides the, the, the foundation and hopefully the inspiration for people in this country uh, to make us a governing majority where we can take many of those uh, principles and uh, apply them in a way that, uh, as I said, uh, hopefully moves the country in a better uh, and a stronger direction. Um, I want to move on a little bit. You just uh, finished a briefing, a classified briefing on Ukraine. Um, I'm not going to ask you about that because I know it was classified specifically, but I do want to ask you about Ukraine in general. Um, is the Republican Party, does the Republican Party need to be committed to providing the support continuously that Ukraine needs in this war against Russia? I think so. Um, and so far, at least, it's been a bipartisan issue. I do think there's got to be an accounting for, you know, funds that have been appropriated and allocated to that to that effort. But I don't think that there's any question that we benefit from the courageous effort the Ukrainians are making to repel a Russian aggression there and diminishing uh, Russia's uh, conventional war making capability. I think that is a that is uh, uh, in America's national security interests, clearly in NATO's interest. And I've never seen probably NATO as um, unified as they are today and with everybody stepping up and making contributions to this effort. So uh, I think the stakes are high. I think it's not just the immediate. I also think that China is paying attention to what's happening here. And of course, there are implications there in the future, possibly with respect to Taiwan. So I think they're, um, you know, from a, a geopolitics, uh, American national security, um, certainly regional allies, uh, security interest, it is the right thing for us to stay engaged there. But that doesn't mean we don't need to demand and make sure that uh, the funds that we are appropriating are being used well and wisely and contributing to a successful war effort. And I think there will be attempts to get a, a more fulsome accounting of uh, funds that have been appropriated already. But in my view, at least, um, as I look at the world today and see how dangerous it is out there, it is in our, uh, the United States national security interest to see Ukraine succeed there. Mm -hmm. uh, President Biden has asked for 37, I believe it's 37 or $39 billion for Ukraine. Um, part of that discussion is happening right now probably as we speak as part of a government funding bill um, to fund the government for the remainder of the year uh, you congress has until next friday to figure out what to do next um, where do you see these discussions happening on government funding do you think that congress will be able to get it done for the rest of the year or do you think they're just going to kick the can down the road for a, a week or a few months um, remains to be seen, and, and you know from covering this place, Leanne, that uh, at this time of the year, it's kind of all bets are off. But the one thing we don't have yet, yet, is even a top line number. And I was, you know, I had some Democrats uh, hitting me up today on the floor about, you know, why, why, why don't you guys get behind the idea of an omnibus? So I'm like, well, show us the, you know, show us the money, show us the number. I, I think the key, obviously, for a lot of Republicans is the defense number. And the um, Democrats want to include um, the Ukraine money in the defense number uh, to try and, I think, sort of reduce the overall number for defense. And then, of course, they're always interested in getting a plus up on the non-defense um, domestic spending side of the equation. But until we get the top line number and then kind of figure out what the allocation is between defense and non-defense, it's hard to, to, to move the process forward, which is why 
I think a lot of people are concluding that um, we may end up with the calendar working against us now with a short-term continuing resolution, which is not in anybody's best interest. It's in everybody's best interest to try and fully fund the government through the end of the fiscal year next year on September 30th. And um, but it, it just if, if we can't even agree on a top line number, it's um, it may be that uh, we don't, you know, aren't left with many alternatives because, uh, you know, clearly it takes time to execute uh, on a bill like that. And there will be lots of other issues that get um, woven into that. And and at least at this point, there's not a lot of time to do it. Does the fact that Congress is changing hand, the House is going to flip Republican next year. Um, is that dynamic playing into these conversations about funding? Is it making more difficult to come to an agreement between Republicans and Democrats in the House and the Senate? Probably. Um, I, I think the assumption is that with the Republican House next year, that there will be more negotiating leverage on, um, you know, on the non-defense side of the equation, and then perhaps we could get a better number that restrains uh, spending. Uh, we, we all believe that, uh, uh, you know, the, the massive amount of government spending in the last few years has contributed mightily to the inflationary crisis that we're having today, and that's it's impacting, obviously, every uh, family around this country. And um, so if there's an expectation that with a Republican House next year, you might be able to ultimately get a bill that spends less on the domestic side, uh, continues to support uh, national security and our defense, that that might be a good outcome. Uh, the alternative, of course, is that that happens. We pass a short term continuing resolution into next year, and then the House of Representatives is left with trying to transact in a very difficult environment with a narrow majority a full funding bill for the full year. So there are lots of moving pieces here, but um, I do believe to your point that there is at least a, a belief that um, perhaps by having a continuing resolution take us into next year, that there could be a better outcome with a, with a Republican House of Representatives. I mean, that's obviously the, the conversation that's being held right now. And um, uh, but again, none of this gets started until we have a top line number and the Democrats have yet to produce that. You told Bloomberg a week or two ago that you think that the debt limit should be used as leverage to reform things like Social Security. Can you explain and what changes are you willing to default in order to make some of these changes that you want? Well, I don't I don't believe I never believe default is an option, um, but I do think that when you're trying to do a debt limit increase, which in my experience here is a hard vote and whoever has the, the majorities or the White House or whomever it generally has to produce or deliver the votes for that, that it does present an opportunity to have a conversation about the debt. And, you know, in 2011, the Budget Control Act came out of uh, those conversations and that did put some caps on uh, and restrain for at least a few years discretionary spending in a significant way. And then it created this uh, debt commission essentially that met and was supposed to come up with uh, recommendations on how to deal with entitlement programs and the mandatory part of federal spending. Um, and they ultimately couldn't come up with that, but it was a mechanism where if they had it produced it, it would have been an up and down vote uh, in both the House and the Senate. And I think it's going to take something that provides some political insulation for, um, you know, people up here to make some of the hard decisions about how we deal with the sustainability of a lot of these programs that are headed for bankruptcy. And, 
there was a lot made of what I said there. All I simply said was that we need to look at how we can reform these programs so that they're available not just to people who are retired or retiring today, but future generations of Americans. And I think that's a conversation we need to have. But if we could even come up with a process that would lead to perhaps somewhere down the road a result. And the other thing I've always said about this, Leanne, is that big issues like this, uh, particularly talk about entitlement reform, require presidential leadership. And, you know, there have been, there's to have been presidents that have been interested in doing it. I mean, President Trump wasn't interested in dealing with this issue. Uh, and we continue to kick the can down the road. The debt continues to grow. And um, I think we get into a situation where if, you know, at some point we're going to have to face this, there will be a day of reckoning. And I would rather take steps in advance of that that help ease that um, transition rather than have a, a crisis uh, come up on us, which I think is inevitable if we don't start taking steps today to deal with it. So can the debt limit present that opportunity? I think it can, um, but we'll see. You know, we've had, uh, we have a number of our members who have ideas on budget reforms. We have people who want to see a, a no government shutdown provision added so we didn't have to deal with the specter of, of shutdowns on a, on a recurring basis. Um, and then I think maybe perhaps even more so coming up with a mechanism to deal with the mandatory part of our federal budget, which is uh, two thirds of federal spending today, and is the, if left on, on autopilot, unsustainable. These programs are gonna go bankrupt if we don't do something uh, soon. I have a question from a viewer. Daniel Lee from Minnesota asks, what are the first steps the new Congress should take to rein in inflation? Well, I think I would say two things. One is stop the spending. And I think we flooded the zone. And you've heard, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, the captains of industry say that there's still a trillion or a trillion and a half of, you know, federal government out there in the economy uh, that at some point next year will probably cycle through. But as long as you've got, uh, you know, dollars and, and uh, high demand, too many dollars chasing too few of goods, you have inflation. And that's what we've seen. Secondly, I'd say an energy policy, because I think a lot of what drives inflation is energy. And um, our South Dakota Public Utilities Commission came out this week and said, expect much higher energy prices this year for heating. And, you know, you've got the National Energy Information uh, Administration saying there was 28%, they're saying 28% increase in energy costs this year to heat your homes. And that's on top of double digit increases last year. So I think in all of the above energy strategy, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm for oil and gas, I'm for biofuels, I come from a biofuel state, I come from a wind state, I'm for solar, I'm from nuclear, um, I'm for natural gas. I just think American energy uh, would help, it would bring that cost down and create more supply here. I think that, that uh, translates into all the other things that we purchase out there. I think it's a huge factor when it comes to inflation. And I would also argue that smart tax and regulatory policies that create more supply um, also are, um, I think, pro-growth policies, I guess I would say, are also important when it comes to trying to get inflation under control. Um, there's a divided Congress. Uh, the House Republicans are talking about investigations, investigating the Biden administration, including Alejandro Mayorkas, um, potentially impeachment is on the table. Is that what you think voters uh, looking to 2024 want? I, actually, I think that there is a legitimate role for Congress to play when it comes to oversight. I and mean, we have a, 
uh, an enterprise called the federal government that spends uh, on the order of four, more than $4 trillion a year. And in this last year, more than $6 trillion. And I just think that ensuring that there are, you know, sort of, uh, there's good accountability for how those funds are being spent. There are 130 programs that cross 15 federal agencies that deal with broadband, investment in broadband. And that's an issue I care a lot about because we're trying to get build out into rural areas of this country. But, you know, there's a lot of redundancy. There's a lot of overbuilding. There's a lot of duplication. And so I think there's lots of ways that the, the, a role that the Congress needs to play as, you know, part of our uh, separation of powers and checks and balances and making sure that funding that's appropriate, allocated to federal agencies in the executive branch is spent wisely and well and, and on target. Um, when it comes to some of these other investigations that you alluded to, I mean, clearly, again, you want to make sure there's accountability, there's transparency. And, and holding people accountable in uh, in positions is important. I think the border has been a, a, a complete disaster. And, mm -hmm. you know, just look at the data when it comes to that. And so I think there ought to be oversight of um, Homeland Security and how they're handling and how the administration, the Biden administration is handling the crisis at the southern border. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm not somebody who is uh, thinks that uh, going after or targeting individuals is uh, ought to be a full time job. I think there are lots of other things that that, as you said, voters and people across this country care about and, uh, you know, predominantly economic issues. But I do think there is a legitimate role for oversight that's been neglected. Uh, and, it, and that's kind of a natural thing. When you have all of government, and the Democrats have had unified control for the last couple of years. They've had the House, the Senate and the White House. Uh, the oversight role kind of gets overlooked when that's the case. And I think that having that check and balance is important. Senator, we have like 20 seconds left, so I just want to ask you very briefly in this divided government, is there anything that you think can pass? I think tech, tech, trade, a new farm bill, um, hopefully some IRS uh, oversight with respect to all the additional funding and, and uh, people they want to hire, and uh, and maybe something on energy. I just think it depends on the, the parties and whether they're willing to come to the table and, and, uh, and cooperate. Great. Senator. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. We are out of time. And to our viewers, Senator Thune um, always answers all of our questions, many, many <laughs> questions in the hallway. We totally appreciate Thank it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you asked them, you asked them well, so let's, let's put it that way. Oh, most of the time, hopefully. <laughs> but, uh, thank you so much for your time today, Senator. Really appreciate it. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Leanne. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.